Hello, and welcome to episode 83 of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. On today's episode of the podcast, I talked to Dr. Roy Schwartzman, professor in the Department of Communication Studies at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. In the, when you're studying the history of rhetoric, it, it's not simply retrospective. That history of rhetoric has a forward trajectory where there are uh, these touchstones uh, to important rhetorical events that inform us and hopefully can equip us to better cope with and take proactive measures about analogous, analogous kinds of rhetorical situations in the present and the future. You'll hear more from Dr. Schwartzman in a bit. But first, I want to amplify an opportunity from the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I promise this is the last time. A couple of weeks ago, we launched the Big Rhetorical Podcast Fellowship Program. The Big Rhetorical Podcast seeks a graduate student to serve as the Big Rhetorical Podcast Fellow for the 2021-2022 academic year. The fellow will assist in various aspects of running a podcast. Specifically, the fellow will help with two social media initiatives with the goal of growing TBR podcast reach and listenership. The fellow will also help with production, including booking and interviewing for their own episode during season six. This is a paid opportunity and payment is $100. Applications should come from graduate students with research interests in rhetoric, digital publishing, technical communication, and or social media. We estimate that this will be three to four hours of work. Payment is through our nonprofit organization. This fellowship will give the fellow experience working with a leading academic podcast, connecting with scholars in rhetoric, writing studies, and adjacent areas, and gaining valuable experience working and producing in the field. To apply, please send a CV and an email of interest to thebigrhetorical at gmail.com with the subject line, TBR Podcast Fellow Application. Applications are due on November 15th, 2021. Please direct all questions and inquiries to the Big Rhetorical Podcast. For additional information about the podcast, visit www.thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. Dr. Roy Schwartzman is a professor in the Department of Communication Studies at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. He serves as a faculty affiliate with the Department of Peace and Conflict Studies, the Joint School of Nanoscience and Nanoengineering, and the Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies programs at UNCG. Author of more than 150 scholarly articles and chapters, and 350 poetry publications, he has won more than 20 research awards and 60 literary awards. His research areas include rhetoric of inquiry, political communication, Holocaust studies, public argumentation, and scholarship of teaching and learning. 
He is principal investigator of Cultivate Resilient Communities, the grant that established UNCG as the inaugural NCA Center for Communication, Community Collaboration, and Change. His recent research investigates the social and educational implications of the COVID-19 pandemic. He is the founding administrator of the Facebook megagroup Pandemic Pedagogy and has been named a Facebook Power Administrator. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Roy Schwartzman. What's your name, your title, your institution, and your role there? What do you do and who are you? Um, a lot of people ask that. I don't have a lot of answers. Uh, I, I can answer my name, <laughs> uh, but uh, I'm Roy Schwartzman. I'm a professor of communication studies and department head uh, at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. Uh, and, and so what do I do there? Basically, uh, particularly after the pandemic, the department head is, is sort of the uh, it, 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 it's sort of that, that transitional piece where you've got a foot in administration, but your primary role is to act as an advocate for the faculty in your department and for the students in your department. A lot of people don't even talk about that as part yeah. of the job description. And so uh, it, it is a job that uh, uh, involves a lot of advocacy uh, and a lot of um, just uh, helping to create an environment where everyone feels that they can thrive and feel empowered. Uh, and um, the more that I can contribute to that, then the better. How long have you been the department chair? <laughs> uh, I, I became department head in fall of 2019, conveniently, just getting settled in. And so then I'm the pandemic head. So um, yeah, I, basically my department headship uh, closely aligns uh, with the timeline of the pandemic, and there there is a certain you know poetic connection there. It seems like you know this pr progression of, of of chaos and things like that. But um, yeah, so so it's been a, quite an interesting time because when I, when I assumed the position, uh, it was just sort of this. I mean, we have a very collegial department, and everything, and so it was just sort of okay. Well, we'll, we'll just extend. The way things were going, and then the world turned upside down. So, what are some of the things you've had to wrangle with, wrang wrangle with in this new position? Maybe even thinking about day to day activities and stuff like that. Well, I think to some extent there there is the bottom line of, of some of the basic mechanisms in in terms of just uh, keeping processes, normal processes, going for things like. Um, uh, funding various things and uh, bluntly paying the bills and all of that. Uh, unfortunately, uh, those quotidian tasks did not take a holiday uh, when the pandemic started. Uh, and I, I think we're, we're confronted really largely with the situation of, on the one hand, still having to do these kind of mechanical everyday things, but we continue to be in anything but on an everyday environment. Uh, and, and so part of what I'm doing is trying to negotiate between this kind of ongoing crisis management atmosphere while at the same time um, trying to um, work with people to um, just advance their, um, their professional careers. 
Uh, and and so that it's it's a it's a delicate balance, but I think that's really uh, what just about anybody in my position is, is doing throughout this time. Yeah. Are you originally from North Carolina? No, I'm not. Uh, I'm originally from Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, but um, the interesting thing is my very first full-time, quote, real job uh, in academia uh, was at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. Oh. Uh, yeah. I, um, I had just finished my master's degree at the University of Georgia, and I had a glamorous job uh, repossessing cars uh, at, a, uh, at a prominent bank. Uh, that uh, uh, that had a branch in, um, in in Athens, and so there I was at this job. And um, one day, uh, after having I think the previous evening, uh, you know, stolen back uh, a vehicle, uh, I got a call from my former department head saying, "Hey, there's this um, short-term opening at uh, UNCG, University of North Carolina at Greensboro," and uh, I uh, suggested that uh, you'd be a good candidate and uh, they want to talk to you. And so I um, went over to the campus and um, they, uh, uh, they interviewed me and I got the position. And that is what uh, convinced me to get into academia full time. I didn't, well, as should be fairly obvious, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, and so um, I, I taught there uh, in the uh, spring. Uh, and summer of 1985, and uh, replaced a faculty member who was on leave. And it convinced me that, that the experience was so good that it convinced me that I, I wanted to really do this. So uh, I packed up literally everything I owned uh, in, in my little subcompact car and uh, moved to Iowa City and uh, embarked on my PhD. And then uh, finished that and have been out and about all over the country uh, teaching. And 21 years after I uh, started uh, that uh, teaching uh, identity, if you will, uh, I wound up coming back to UNCG. So it, it came full circle for me. It's weird how those things happen sometimes, isn't it? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, I had... No idea I'd ever be back here, but the, the last words that my um, immediate supervisor had when I left UNCG, you know, to go to the uh, wild blue yonder of the University of Iowa uh, is, gee, I, you know, I really hope you'll, you'll come back here full time uh, on a long term basis someday. And I said, yeah, that'd be nice. And then it turned out that's exactly what happened. That's fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about your time at the University of Iowa, um, specifically because I, I was looking at your dissertation title and looking at a little bit at that, and I thought that perhaps that would resonate today. So let's, your dissertation was Racial Science, Nazism, and the Genesis of Genocide, and certainly it's a project that has um, impacted, you know, your trajectory as, as a scholar for the last, you know, X amount of years. Um, Tell me a little bit about that project and where it went, obviously, and then what do you think about it today and in, in our current moment? Yeah, um, I started getting interested in that area somewhat uh, when I was doing my master's program at Georgia because my um, master's thesis director uh, was Michael McGuire. And he, uh, of course, did um, what's usually considered 
the definitive work in the communication studies field, uh, analyzing Mein Kampf, uh, where he examined Mein Kampf as uh, mythic uh, rhetoric and specifically the, the cyclical mythic uh, communication uh, and uh, argued that people had misinterpreted it, uh, trying to make sense of it as some sort of linear logical argument. So uh, I had that kind of percolating in the background. But as I approached that, um, uh, that, that crucial time of, well, you know, it's, it's time for you to write your prospectus for your dissertation. What are you going to do? Uh, I, I gravitated toward this whole idea of, okay, what's, what's the most important example historically of like the power of the word on a large scale? Uh, you know, you're thinking very much like the podcast, right? The big rhetorical podcast, <laughs> out of the, you know, the big rhetorical dissertation, right? right. Uh, and um, so I thought, well, you know, uh, the the whole uh, ascent of uh, of Nazism in Germany and, and anti-Semitism seems to be uh, a very important example of particularly the pernicious uh, power uh, of, of rhetoric. Uh, and then, of course, you know, my, my personal connections being Jewish, I, I don't have like direct connections to the Holocaust because my family left uh, that area long before. But uh, I got really interested in that, felt a, con a connection to it uh, and uh, went ahead and um, learned some German for that. Uh, and uh, because I already had some degree of facility for language, so it wasn't that big a deal because I'd done French ever since I was in kindergarten. And so, you know, learned German enough to uh, translate uh, primary source materials and all of that. And uh, so that's the way it went. And, and I find that I, I continue to, to come back to that, uh, not just as a researcher, but more as kind of a, a public presence in doing things like um, Holocaust education workshops. Um, and, and actually, I'm involved a, a fair amount in the whole project of teaching the teachers. Uh, so over the years, I've done quite a few workshops with the uh, North Carolina Center for the Advancement of Teaching uh, and uh, worked alongside the uh, North Carolina Council on the Holocaust, uh, have uh, various uh, grant-supported work with the Southern Poverty Law Center, the Jewish Chautauqua Society, et cetera, uh, and, and have, have worked a lot of that into my coursework in various ways. So at a number of universities, I, I uh, actually initiated and... Um, have regularly taught courses either uh, in the Holocaust and genocide prevention or in um, propaganda more generally. So it, it's still there as far as its relevance in, in the present moment. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I wish people would look at the these ideas in my dissertation, which primarily dealt with scientized anti-Semitism, this whole idea of the appropriation of science mm -hmm. uh, to support discrimination. But uh, really the, this whole, uh, almost cycling backwards that that we've seen uh recently of what do you just, mean just, cycling backwards well where uh we we have an environment where there is a degree of fearlessness and mainstreaming uh of prejudice of racism of uh the the sorts of intolerance that i talk about there uh and we we knew it we knew it was there but what's particularly alarming is that it is now considered uh, part of public discourse. Uh, I mean, even right here in North Carolina, one of our justifications for uh, the um, 
uh, large NCA grant that my department uh, received, which we're going to talk about later, was uh, the fact that you know North Carolina has been one of the um, uh, states that's led the charge to restrict voting rights. And um, the Supreme Court even said the North Carolina laws, uh, this is a direct quote from, I believe, one of the circuit courts, um, that uh, it, it, it targeted particular races with, quote, almost surgical precision. Uh, you know, wow. and, and, and so we, we have that. We, of course, have the, uh, the, the very direct authorization uh, of intolerance and, uh, and, and bigotry. Uh, again, uh, very close to home here, literally, because the, um, uh, the, uh, the, the marches and violence uh, at the University of Virginia were only a few hours away. And I was teaching one of my Holocaust courses at the time, and the, and the next morning after that happened, and after Heather Heyer uh, was was killed by the uh, uh, the right wing president. And by the way, let, let's not sugarcoat this. Alt right is just a rebranding of you know white nationalism and neo Nazism. Okay, right. so you know I'm not I'm not going to buy into this kind of domestication of oh alt right, but uh, you know and and so my students and I had to confront the immediate connection of what we were studying and, you know, all the way from the, the initial processes of othering uh, groups that are out groups uh, or, you know, portrayed as out groups or conceived as out groups uh, in, you know, the early uh, 20th century and before, it's not just an historical fact. I mean, the, the fact that you had protesters who were literally chanting these slogans that were right out of historical documents uh, and video footage from, you know, the 1930s, the 1940s in uh, in, in Nazi Germany really brought that home. So the whole idea here is like uh, in in the, when you're studying the history of rhetoric, it's not simply retrospective. That history of rhetoric has a forward trajectory where there are, uh, these touchstones uh, to important rhetorical events that inform us and hopefully can equip us to better cope with and take proactive measures about analogous, analogous kinds of rhetorical situations in the present and the future. One of the words, Roy, that stuck with me there was fearlessness. Fearlessness, yeah. but it's something you you described as always there. So I wonder, like, what what amplified it? What what for what made it okay to foreground that fearlessness through actions like running over someone with their car? Well, I think it's a convergence of of several factors here. Uh, I think first of all, in in the political arena, uh, you have found far more uh, effective uh, mobilization techniques that are being used by the radical right. Uh, you have also found that uh, the uh, the far right behaviors and attitudes have been actively courted and encouraged, and I think uh, and I think particularly we see how this is true with um, portions of the evangelical community, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, also with. Uh, the uh, the way well, I, I mentioned voter suppression and things like that. Uh, you find that there is a radicalization uh, in politics. Yes, on 
you know, each side, so-called left and right, although I, I can't stand those terms, it's a very impoverished world that only thinks in, a, in, the, in two dimensions. Right. But that, uh, you know, you, you find that there is explicit authorization in uh, the political leadership. And, and I'll just put it right out there because I've written a fair amount about this. Uh, you, you find very aggressive, active encouragement of these sorts of sentiments from the very top with, um, with Donald Trump and, and his ilk. But again, you know, it's easy to say, oh, it's all Trump. Trump, Trump was and is a symptom, not just a cause. Uh, but the fact is, here's someone, one example, not the only one, of, of someone in a seat of, in this case, extreme power, uh, who uh, is a darling of the uh, extreme right and, dare I say, white supremacists, white nationalists, and fascists. And, and, and so you, you have that on the local level, too. I mean, there, there, are, um, there are overt Holocaust deniers and Nazi sympathizers who have been relatively successful in local elections, uh, in, including uh, the, the state of Iowa, for example. So um, it, the, the whole concern here is, on the one hand, it's disturbing that uh, these sorts of uh, causes and, and people and movements are, um, are, are more public. On the other hand, it does expose them to greater scrutiny and direct engagement with them rhetorically. So I'd like to think that what this is doing is also strengthening counter-rhetorical measures. So, uh, you know, I, I, in, in some ways, uh, it's, it's, it's helpful that these forces of intolerance are <clears throat> overt enough to engage with now. Well, your work is just so fascinating. I think we could stay on this topic for the entire discussion, but alas, we have other things to talk about. Specifically, and you mentioned it earlier, your 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 National Communication Association grant, Cultivate Resilient Community, that, uh, like I said, is from the National Communication Association grant, which established the UNCG Department of Communication Studies as the inaugural NCA Center for Communication, Community Collaboration, and Change. And I think it's worth mentioning that you're the PI on that. Tell us a little bit about that project. How did it start? What is its genesis? And what's next? Where do you stand now? And what's next? Well, uh, in 2018, uh, NCA, the National Communication Association, uh, put out a call for applicants for a brand new grant that they were initiating. <clears throat> and uh, it, it, it is a grant that uh, is basically focusing on community-engaged work, but specifically community-engaged work that focuses on communication as the key for um, instigating productive social change. And they, they were, were rather open about that deliberately, I, I think probably just to find out how people would, um, would angle uh, their ideas toward that. Uh, anyway, uh, this seemed kind of interesting, and my colleagues and I started getting contacted by people we knew in the communication field. They said, did, did you see the, this call for grant proposals? This sounds so much like your department, what, what your department already does, right? And... Um, 
you know, th this whole idea and focusing on social justice, um, uh, de democratic action, community engaged work, et cetera, fit very well. And so um, I marshaled my colleagues together and we started uh, hammering this out. And bear in mind, we submitted this back in um, early 2019. And so this was well before, you know, the word pandemic was a regular part of our vocabulary. Right. Uh, and, and lo and behold, the theme of the grant is exactly what the, the, the pandemic is, is focusing on now. But uh, we submitted it. And then um, on August 1st, 2019, uh, officially, the grant began the same day that my term as department head began. Uh, and I was notified over the summer by uh, NCA leadership that we had gotten the grant. And so uh, the grant originally was scheduled to, to run for a course of two years. Uh, we're, we're kind of extending that as we go because things have been slowed by the pandemic. Um, let me also give uh, due credit here to my fine colleague who is uh, the actual administrator of the day-to-day of -day operation of the grant on the ground, and that's Spoma Jovanovic, uh, who's done great work throughout her career uh, in uh, community-engaged uh, research uh, and has won many service awards uh, and has been deeply involved for decades in, in the Greensboro community. So just an ideal person uh, to take the helm of the day-to-day -day operations of the grant. But um, the, the, the way this is structured is it's, it's the largest institutional grant that NCA's ever awarded to the best of anyone in NCA's knowledge. Uh, and it the grant really isn't so much, you know, pumping all this money into our department, but the idea is that we have um, five different community organizations that we work with, uh, and each of them we awarded a mini grant to. We we opened up applications, and they had to apply uh, for these mini grants, uh, and uh, these applications were judged uh, by. Uh, teams of faculty, uh, students, uh, undergraduate and graduate students, and community uh, activists. Okay, so, so you had all the, the different stakeholders uh, making these judgments together. Uh, and so we are working with organizations on uh, issues such as uh, food insecurity, uh, food self-sufficiency, um, grassroots uh, local activism, uh, learning about how to uh, take action in your community, identify significant issues, and then collectively uh, move toward uh, local actions to remediate situations, uh, and also uh, digital literacy uh, in the service of uh, various uh, democratic causes, activating uh, citizens working uh, in, in that particular case uh, with a great network uh, of um, libraries. Uh, and, and so it's a wide variety of causes. And we also uh, have a fantastic organization uh, that we're working with, uh, the Beloved Community Center, uh, that deals with racial justice issues, specifically focusing on uh, African-Americans, uh, but they also do work uh, with uh, a variety of different communities. So we have a wide variety of causes. And in each case, each of these organizations is teamed with a lead faculty member who focuses on the research aspect of a specific project that they are pursuing. Uh, and so what you have is communication research that is helping to gauge 
uh, how to maximize the results of these projects and to uh, determine how to sustain them and how to, um, uh, how to promote their success in the future. Uh, and then you still have the uh, community partners who are really driving all these efforts. And the whole idea about cultivate resilient communities is we basically talked about how the, the current time still uh, since 2018 and certainly for several years before seems to be this convergence of a lot of threats to community organizations. Uh, and we identify things particularly in Greensboro as the site for this grant. I mentioned voter suppression throughout North Carolina. Uh, Greensboro actually for a while had um, the highest rate of food insecure, well, the county uh, had the highest rate of uh, food insecurity uh, in the United States for a while. Uh, and that's been wow. uh, reduced, uh, at least in part, thanks to fantastic efforts uh, that uh, my colleague, Dr. Marianne LaGreco, whose brand new book, Everybody Eats, just came out and talks about these community-based efforts to uh, relieve food insecurity. But that's typical of the sorts of, of challenges uh, that, that are being faced. And so the idea here is not so much to go in and say, oh, look, community organizations are in trouble, let's go fix them, but rather to work hand in hand with the community partners to enhance their capacity to uh, proactively plan for, productively respond to, and prevent in the future these kinds of threats to the populations that they serve. I think you kind of answered my next question, but I think there's more to it. So I'll ask it. What has this grant done for your department? You know, first of all, I'd, I'd like to think that this is this is an ongoing thing that we're going to continue. I mean, long past any sort of funding deadlines mm -hmm. or things like this, that that what this does is this provides very important external validation of our identity, not just as an academic department, but an academic department whose work is within the context of the interests of the community at large. Uh, and that we, we had been embracing that as a department. And in fact, that, that, that type of thing is actually embedded in our departmental mission. We even talk about our mission in the grant proposal. But that uh, what this does is this shows that this is not just some sort of thing that is peculiar to our department, mm -hmm. but it's this, the type of recognition that communication as an intellectual pursuit is also always a pursuit of simply helping to make the world a better place. Uh, and, and the fact that that has, has received the full endorsement and, and tremendous support uh, of NCA, I, I think has really helped the department uh, approach our mission with, with a renewed affirmation uh, of our larger obligations uh, as um, active scholars. And, and, and so, so that's really... But the long-term kind of thing, it's not so much transformational, but reaffirmation. More after this. Would you like to join Charles in the Big Rhetorical Podcast? The podcast is booking for next season now. 
The Big Rhetorical Podcast offers participants the opportunity to contribute to ongoing conversations within our disciplines and beyond. This record of conversations eventually will be a digital archive with the potential to impact the knowledge making in rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication, as well as adjacent fields. Do you have a new book coming out? Are you hitting the job market this cycle? The Big Rhetorical Podcast wants to talk to you. The Big Rhetorical Podcast core ideals are similar to a community-based writing project with an emphasis on inclusivity and localizing knowledge and in strengthening relationships among peers. Make sure to check out our back catalog of episodes as well as listen to our new podcast each week wherever you listen to your podcast. If you have questions about the Big Rhetorical Podcast, please submit a form at the website www.thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. You can also find the Big Rhetorical Podcast on Twitter at the Big Ret. Follow the podcast on Facebook or email us at thebigrhetorical@gmail.com. Welcome back, Roy. One of the things I think is so fascinating about the the work you do really is just about your career and getting to know you a little bit is that you are not just interested in communication studies, rhetorical studies, but you're also an artist. You're a poet. Uh, And folks interested in learning more about Roy's endeavors as a poet can visit www.roypoet.com. Roy, tell me a little about your most recent poetry endeavors. What kind of things, uh, I'm sorry, what kind of poetry or poems can readers expect uh if they were to seek out your work limericks no <laughs> the uh <laughs> actually i i do i do have a, a a goal one day of publishing an article that's entirely just a series of limericks <laughs> but uh well you know to, to understand like my, my latest work and, and that sort of thing I, I think it's necessary to take a retrospective my interest in poetry predates anything that uh, yeah. I've been doing academically and everything. I mean, so I, before I first, the philosophy, before everything. Oh, I mean, I, I, I gosh, I published my first first poems when I was eleven years old. Oh wow, that's and um, so I. And as a matter of fact, I remember what encouraged me is my my fourth grade teacher um, took an whose degree was in English uh-huh. took an interest in uh, kind of um, mentoring me as a writer and uh, encouraged. Uh, that side uh, of of me to blossom, uh, and I've just had uh, I, I've just gravitated toward poetry uh, when mainly when I I felt the need for a different form of expression, uh, and I think this ties in very well with uh, a uh, a movement that I'm happy to see is is really uh, getting uh, more attention in our field. Uh, and that is a movement of going beyond just the traditional scholarly articles, the sole mode of intellectual and emotional engagement with the world. Uh, and and uh, wonderful work is being done here. Uh, you know, you can point to things such as the, the really nice kind of um, what I think is, is some of the best codification of this movement is uh, Sandra Faulkner's work mm. uh, in Poetic Inquiry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and she also is a, f- a fine poet. Just uh, if, if you want uh, some really enjoyable poetry to read, uh, definitely take a look at her work. But there are a lot of highly creative people working in communication studies, where you know when when we encounter a problem, 
I, you know, I, I, I always when I'm teaching liken uh, this whole idea of intellectual questions to a toolkit, right? I mean, if you have only one or two things in your toolkit, uh, there, there's not a lot you can do. You know, it's sort of like, you know, when your only tool is a hammer, everything looks like a nail in the world, right? But, you know, uh, poetry defined broadly, uh, whether it's uh, more kind of little more literary or, you know, traditional literary oriented poetry, because I was steeped in the the Western poetical tradition was kind of my sure. education, sure. Uh, which is certainly only a piece of the territory, but whatever form of poetry one creates, uh, that it provides a more expansive mode of engagement. And over the years, I've, um, I have this strain of my work where I, um, I work poetry into uh, the the more traditional scholarly article, uh, and I started really? doing uh, yeah I started doing that uh, I, I think my first published piece where I, I incorporate original poetry in with a scholarly article is like in two thousand two, and periodically I've come back to that, uh, and I, I found particularly when I was participating in this uh, the special issue of communication education last year. Uh, that was dedicated to the pandemic. And in fact, the, the, the section was titled, uh, I remember when Deanna Daniels, uh, the, the editor said, well, you know, we've got this special section and, you know, uh, it, it's kind of got the same name as your Facebook group, right? It's uh, Pandemic Pedagogy is the name of the section. And uh, in that, it, it was another case where I was encountering something, well, we're all encountering something with the pandemic that's uh, very hard to get a grip on. Uh, and when, you know, the conventional kind of, of intellectual research tools uh, seem not to offer um, a, a, a really productive, well, uh, a mode of approach that's fully satisfying, I kind of turn to these other measures. And, and so, you know, if people look at that piece, which is simply called Performing Pandemic Pedagogy, um, that I, I do work in poetry there to kind of capture some of the uh, the tensions primarily that are involved, particularly on the part of students and on this whole collective task we have of essentially trying to rediscover ourselves and what our world means. And I do think that the kinds of transformations, the kinds of challenges the pandemic offers are at that deep a level. But then the question becomes, will we rise to the challenge or will we simply uh, do a uh, the familiar reversion to the mean uh, and just go back to the way things always were? And I'm very disturbed with this whole idea about this whole rhetoric of, you know, well, the new normal and, um, you know, let, let's just kind of backslide into the way things were. I mean, early on the pandemic, and this is the heart of that Performing Pandemic Pedagogy article, the, the heart of, of what the pandemic revealed early on is very, uh, very disturbing disparities and inequities uh, throughout the educational and social systems, right. especially of the United States, but throughout the world, right. uh, and within the educational system particularly. And essentially, none of these have been addressed at a systemic level. And now there's this whole thing about, well, now everybody's just kind of coming back to campus and everything resumes as it was. Well, if it does, I'm very worried because here we have one of the greatest challenges that humanity has faced uh, on top of challenges that are ongoing 
such as challenges of uh, social justice and racial disparities and discrimination that are layered on top of the pandemic and all of those converging, there are opportunities here to create things that are better. Will we meet that challenge? I, I don't know. It's the question, right? The elephant in the room, if you will. I hope that we do. I like to think that we will. We, we have the capacity to. Right. Do we have the will to? Jury's out. You mentioned it. Pandemic Pedagogy, the Facebook group, uh, which has, I mean, I think you know this. It's a bit of a phenomenon. Um, tell us a little bit about how Pandemic Pedagogy started, and I'll jump in with some other questions. Yeah, the, the birth story uh, in, in brief <laughs> the form. The birth is in, story, I love yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, the book of Genesis is uh, is... In, in in the cliff notes form uh it, a it, pandemic pedagogy <laughs> yeah right right you know but uh anyway the the first part of that pandemic uh performing pandemic pedagogy article which by the way is open access i would never recommend something that has yes. a paywall yeah uh thank you thank you taylor and francis for that kindness uh but it is interesting by the way speaking of that uh you'll notice that early in the pandemic you know all the paywalls came down oh wow you know information yeah. is free again as the pandemic wore on the paywalls went back up for most things so, so this is what you're seeing. It's like, whoa, wait a minute, you know. Um, but, okay, pandemic pedagogy. Uh, on March 10th, 2020, uh, I had uh, just finished teaching uh, a, uh, an evening course, uh, a graduate course, I believe. No, it was a combination graduate and undergraduate course, actually. Mm. Uh, and um, so uh, we had done an event and... Uh, there, there was talk about, you know, cases of this new form of a SARS virus popping up, uh, and more and more cases were being discovered of what turned out to be uh, COVID nineteen, and uh, so <clears throat> the university announced something unprecedented that um, they were going to. This was just before spring break, right? And they were going to uh, basically just shut down all courses at the university. And over spring break, every face-to-face -face course was supposed to be converted to a fully online course. Right. Okay. Uh, one week. Well, actually 10 days, uh, but uh, effectively a week because people were still, you know, wrapping up whatever they were doing that week before spring break. And so the next day, right, the next day after that was announced, I thought, you know, uh, I'm, I'm in a unique position where I can help people with this. I'm, I can help my colleagues with this because I was designing and teaching some of the earliest fully online courses, I think, particularly performance-based courses in communication studies back in like 2001, 2002. Yeah, 2001 actually were the first ones. So I, uh, I, I'd actually had a, a long line of uh, active scholarship uh, in online teaching and learning. And so I thought, well, you know, maybe I can 
share ideas with other people and, and other people can, you know, clue me on some of the uh, new stuff that they're doing and everybody can benefit. So where, where can we kind of meet and connect? And, and so I thought, okay, why not look at, you know, kind of the, the, the baby boomer answer to that, I guess now, right? <laughs> Facebook, right? Because Facebook is uncool. But, you know, my department already had, you know, a Facebook page that actually I administer. And so it's like, okay, I'll go on Facebook and, and maybe we can get a little group of people together to uh, talk about this and, and uh, you know, just have a, have, a, have a learning space, right? So I started this thing and it, it grew exponentially. Uh, and so I thought, well, you know, if we have a couple of people hanging out there and talking to each other, you know, half a dozen or whatever, great. Well, it grew and grew and grew. Now the, the membership is stabilized at about 32,400. And pretty rapidly, what had happened is it was growing very fast. At one point, it was uh, one of the top three uh, trending Facebook pages on Facebook. And uh, it, it is actually cited all over the world in resources for um, uh, education throughout the pandemic and online teaching and learning. Uh, it's received uh, uh, national level uh, coverage in, in various venues. Uh, and uh, I compiled a, um, a little list of those. Just I was curious. And it really is a worldwide where we're listed and talked about. Where all are you talked about? Yeah, well, uh, gosh, uh, we um, there was a feature specifically on the site and in an interview with me and Higher Ed Works. Oh, uh, and it was actually their, uh, that piece on their social media uh, had the highest engagement of any piece they did uh, all year. Oh, wow. And, um, you know, if you, you take a look at universities all over the place, you'll find a link to the Facebook group, which, by the way, uh, it is a, quote, closed group. So you actually have to answer membership questions. And, you know, we take a look and, you know, see if we'll let you that? in. Why did you decide to uh, make it a closed group? Survival. Because uh, members were coming in too quickly uh, and we couldn't vet them. And I was worried about, um, you know, the likelihood of bots, the likelihood of bad actors coming in. Oh. This, this doesn't fix all of that, but it really is effective at preventing that. Now, if it were, and the other thing too is a closed group enables people to feel a little more comfortable um, honestly stating things. Sure. And, and being open about their opinions and reactions. And I think that's uh, a healthy thing. Uh, and, you know, occasionally it gets into kind of bashing, but not very often. Um, and uh, so fortunately, I got a, got a, a good cadre of moderators because up until the time, this was like, I don't know, 10,000 or so people. I was doing this all alone. I was the sole, wow. I was the founder, I was the administrator, and, and, and I did everything. And um, it, it eventually it just got to be too much. But I have a good group of folks working behind the scenes with me. Uh, and, uh, and the group as a whole is, is very well-mannered. You know, yeah, we have had to, over time, ban a handful of jerks and things like that. But that's very infrequent. Uh, but it's just been a really helpful resource. And it's just kind of gratifying that, that people have found a place where they can go to do everything from uh, share new research uh, ask questions about teaching and learning. Uh, there are uh, a number of um, research studies that uh, use uh, the group as a uh, site for recruiting participants. Uh, you know, uh, news about what's happening at various uh, universities worldwide. 
uh, we have members uh, officially from as many countries as Facebook can register. Uh, so uh, actually, uh, you know, it, it stops at 99 nations uh, in, in their records. And, and early on, we had that. Uh, so uh, I think it's a very interesting place also to get some international perspectives because a lot of the treatment of the pandemic, particularly we get in the States, is very U.S. focused. And the borders of the world do not end at the borders of the United States, uh, much, much as many Americans would like to think they do, they do not. Right. So um, that's how it emerged. And um, a, a while back, uh, a few months ago, uh, I got this uh, weird Facebook group invite uh, that said, we'd like you to join Facebook power admins. Well, you see something that like that and, and you go, you know, th this has scam written all over. Oh, right? yeah. <laughs> but so, so I took a look at this and I, I viewed the group and everything. And actually it turns out, I'm not exactly sure what criteria they use, but um, Facebook corporate has people that recruit leaders of administrators, specifically of groups on Facebook, that by whatever criteria they use are Facebook admins that uh, they believe are, are doing a good job, you know. And uh, there is this group specifically just for, it's a closed group just for them to get together and discuss how they're managing things in their groups, uh, tips on how to how to use certain Facebook features. One of the kind of cool things is that uh, the power admin the the groups that the power admin uh, members uh, administer is where Facebook rolls out a lot of its new group features, and and so there are a lot of features that I have on the admin end of pandemic pedagogy that if you're in other groups or if you um, administer other groups you don't have because they use us as the sounding board for the rollout of new features. Uh, what I did find that's kind of amusing is uh, apparently a lot of the members of the Facebook power admins um, are, you know, it, it, it's kind of like a, uh, a I, I guess you could say like, a, like an Amway convention or something where they're, they're all, they're all face, Facebook cheerleaders and, and, you know, their life goal is to work full-time at Facebook. And they actually, Facebook actually recruits employees you know, from areas like the, the Facebook power admins, right? Uh, that, by the way, has not ever been a goal of mine. But uh, so, so I, I'm, I'm kind of uh, in that realm, which from a communication standpoint is quite interesting because it gives you a different angle on the operation of social media as a communication tool. Uh, not many of us see that, that whole uh, administrative tool angle uh, and uh, it, it, it is quite interesting, uh, the, these, these um, electronic means of, of trying to encourage positive online group behaviors. You mentioned goals and your goals, and uh, it's not your goal to work for Facebook. But I wonder, you know, as pandemic pedagogy has, has taken off over the last 16 months, have the goals of the group changed? If so, how and what are they? That's a really interesting question. Um, I've I've started to tackle that in in some of my recent publications. Mm. Um, uh, the the performing pandemic pedagogy piece tracks a couple of the major issues. A lot of it has been this idea of um, of trying to calibrate 
how you handle in, in, the, in your actual educational practice, in, in your teaching, and frankly, in your research too, um, how to calibrate these, these conflicting forces. So one big thing is, you know, how do you maintain academic rigor without making it an oppressive force that, um, that negates the need to extend empathy, particularly under crisis situations, okay? There, there's a lot of, of exchange about how to do that. You know, how far do you go toward saying, golly, you know, you can't just like eliminate all deadlines. That's not how the real world works. But then again, on the other hand, you say, well, gee, you know, just last week I asked for an extended deadline for, you know, a manuscript that was overdue and they said, fine. So, you know, uh, working through those conflicting forces uh, is, uh, is a big piece. Uh, I've got a piece that, that's coming out anytime now uh, in the Journal of Communication Pedagogy uh, that addresses a few of these other conflicting factors. Uh, and uh, I can't answer definitively uh, what, where the group is going, because I think it's still such a, a living thing uh, that uh, any sort of um, any sort of, of serious content analysis or, or big data analysis potentially is, is going to be problematic because you're, you're only getting a little slice of what's happening. I think what's going to be very interesting and why I'm going to keep this group available, maybe not active, but at least archived, but keep the group available and accessible long past the pandemic, assuming there is a post-pandemic world, <laughs> and um, so that people can take a look at some of the longer-term trends uh, in the group, because I think it's a great window on um, figuring out what kinds of, uh, of, of things the, the educational world is prioritizing during the pandemic. And the interesting thing about this group is, is it, it is mainly educators. Yeah. But it's also, but it's not restricted to them. It, uh, there, there are a lot of students in the group. There are parents, and it's educators at all levels. Yeah, that's what like, I, I mean, love about it. You know, the, the 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 elementary school teacher has a lot that they can teach to the college professor. Okay, uh, you know, the uh, the first year undergraduate student can give a reality check to the faculty member who maybe thought that, well, you know, I have this online learning thing mastered. And then the student says, well, yeah, but here are the sorts of things that we're looking for. So I think it's a really interesting place for a lot of different perspectives and voices to meet. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm very hands-off in the group. You know, uh, I, I don't, uh, I mean, I'll react to things and make suggestions. And if somebody asks a question I can help with, I'll, I'll do that. But I, I, I think it's important to just see how this, uh, this phenomenon takes its course. Mm -hmm. And hopefully, you know, uh, researchers will find it useful in the future. I know, I, I know uh, there, there's one um, communication uh, scholar who, who just uh, posted a link to an article he just published uh, where uh, the data was gathered through the group. So that's great. Oh. And, and hopefully it'll do more of that. I mean, there have been a lot of cases of that, actually. Yeah, excellent. So what are you doing this afternoon, Roy? Yeah, well, um, let's see. I am grading. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's a big piece of it. And um, uh, doing final touches on some budget matters. Uh, and um, uh, posting 
posting the next uh, unit's content in, in my online course, uh, getting that up there because uh, students are working on uh, proposals for their final projects. Uh, and they're also going back, it's a writing intensive course. And so they're, um, uh, they're going back and, and revising a, a couple of uh, the short pieces and uh, like discussion board posts and mini essays. Uh, they have an opportunity where we're, we're coming up close to fall break this next week. And so they've got this week. And if they want to take some next week, I'm not assigning anything next week, but it's like they've got a long time to do stuff, which makes them feel really good. Uh, so that's kind of what I'm doing, you know, just uh, the, uh, the, the fairly normal activities of someone involved in this world of education. Thanks for sitting for an interview with me. It's been really great to get to know you and really engaging conversation. Oh, delightful. Really appreciate the opportunity to Zoom bomb your podcast. And, uh, <laughs> and, I, and, and, and it's a real honor to appear on the, the humongous rhetorical podcast. The big, the big humongous ginormous ginormous taking up too much space big podcast thanks Roy I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Schwartzman it was great to meet and chat with him super smart guy and I was excited to learn more about his work the work he's doing with pandemic pedagogy and of course what it means to lead a Facebook mega group What an exciting chat. The Big Rhetorical Podcast Season 5 is well underway. Make sure you are tuning in. I'll be back next week with another new interview. Until then, always be listening rhetorically. The Big Rhetorical Podcast is produced by Exalt Digital Media. Exalt Digital Media, not for profit. This podcast was recorded on the sacred lands of the Tuscarora people, and we recognize and respect the people of the Kahari, Eastern Band of Cherokee, Haliwa Saponi, Meheran, Okanichi, Band of Saponi, Saponi, and Wakamal Suen. Music for the Big Rhetorical Podcast is brought to you by DJ Lang, Grapes, and Stefan Krattenberg.